This is episode number 10 for the week of August the 2nd, 2020. Again, I'm your host, Dr. James R. Brown. Needless to say, the lingering COVID-19 pandemic is creating havoc in the United States and around the world. Many countries have reported record GNP losses in the second quarter of this year. And as uncertainty continues about when this problem is going to end, more and more people are naturally experiencing low moods and states of depression. I've already spoken on the topic of anxiety in episode number two, and if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. This episode touches on the issue of depression and some ways to get effective treatment. We all have experienced depression at some times in our life. It's a natural experience of living. And for one reason or another, it's never a welcomed experience. For some people, it is the defining state of their being. There is no positive viewpoint, nothing to look forward to, no joy, no light. Fortunately, we have put a handle on at least defining what depression is. The American Psychiatric Association, or APA, uses the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, or what's known as the DSM-5, to identify several criteria for making the diagnosis of depression. Nine different symptoms of depression, plus two additional major criteria, are needed to properly make a diagnosis of a major depressive episode. At least five of the nine symptoms must be present for at least two consecutive weeks. One of the symptoms includes a depressed mood most of the day or nearly every day. Number two, loss of interest or pleasure and most or all activities nearly every day. Number three, insomnia or hyperinsomnia nearly every day. Number four, significant weight loss or weight gain, about 5% within a month, or a decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Number five, psychomotor retardation, meaning you're not moving around much, or agitation nearly every day that's observable by others. Number six, fatigue or low energy nearly every day. Number seven, a decrease in the ability to concentrate, think, or make decisions nearly every day. Number eight, thoughts of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. And number nine, recurrent thoughts of death or suicidal ideation or a suicidal attempt. Now, the additional two criteria include symptoms causing clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And the episode is not attributable to a direct physiological effect of a substance 
or another medical and no identifiable psychosocial stressors such as a trauma, marital conflict, job loss, academic failure, or persistent illness with progressive disabilities. If all of these criteria are present, then an official diagnosis of major depression episode can be made. The DSM-5 criteria for major depression rely on form across different languages, ethnicities, and cultures. That has been validated. So what does your physician need to do to help make this diagnosis? The symptoms of depression in adults can overlap with symptoms of other psychiatric or general medical disorders, such as sadness, burnout, adjustment disorder with a depressed mood, even attention hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, complicated grief, delirium, schizophrenia, or schizoaffective disorders. So a host of other conditions have to be ruled out. Of course, in the medical profession, we like to start with your medical history. It's not uncommon for women, for example, to have postpartum depression after childbirth. And depression is also very common after having experienced a heart attack. So knowing your medical history and circumstances around your life events is important. Another thing we try to investigate and confirm is your family history. Are you coming from a family where depression is prevalent or depression, bipolar disorder, psychosis, or even suicide? So we're bound to ask for those histories. We also look at your social history. How are your interpersonal relationships, occupational, financial stressors, or substance abuse issues? All of these also contribute. After we've done a good history, we may also want to do a physical exam. Neuroimaging studies are only indicated if you suspect the likelihood of some type of structural brain disease. So getting a head CT scan or MRI is not normally indicated. Common laboratory screening tests include the basic chemistry panel, uh, CBC, checking the thyroid for hypothyroidism, checking for past infections like syphilis, looking for an active pregnancy, and a urine toxicology screen looking for drugs of abuse. Other things that are rare would include deficiency of vitamin B12 or folate. They are also associated with depression. Now, after that, you're likely going to be given a questionnaire to get a sense of your general state feeling. The questionnaires have been tested multiple times in different settings, and they have been determined to be very valid measures of a person's state of depression. So there are some standard questionnaires that are available that 
medical practices use for testing and checking for depression. The most common of them we call the PHQ-9, which is a depression questionnaire that has nine items on it. The first two items, if your response is positive, would be almost automatic for depression. So there's a total of nine items in the questionnaire for a maximum of 27 points. If you score anywhere from zero to four, you're considered pretty normal. Five to nine of 27 is considered mild depression. A score of 10 to 14 points would be considered moderate depression. 15 to 19 points is considered moderately severe. And 20 to 27 is considered severe depression. Now, this test is about 88% sensitive, meaning that the ability for this questionnaire to correctly detect if a person has depression, that's about 88% likely. It's also 88% specific, meaning that if you don't have depression about 88% of the time, this test is going to confirm that you don't have it. Now, unipolar major depression is characterized by a history of one or more major depressive episodes and no history of mania or hypomania. Subtypes of depressive episodes like anxiety, atypical depression, mixed features of depression, psychosis, and seasonal depression are excluded. Patients with unipolar major depression benefit from a collaborative care approach. Collaborative care involves a team of clinicians, including number one, your primary care physician, who's going to be the person responsible for possibly prescribing your antidepressant. Number two is a mental health specialist, possibly a psychiatrist who could also prescribe your antidepressant, or a psychotherapist who provides consultation and supervision. The third person in your collaborative care team would be a case manager, usually a medical social worker. Referrals to a mental health specialist is indicated for patients in whom the diagnosis of depression or its comorbidities is uncertain. Patients with severe depression or depression that hasn't responded to an initial treatment or if it's determined that there are elements of psychosis with the depression, then a mental health specialist is absolutely necessary. Now, mental health specialists, psychotherapists, uh, have to be selected based on the form of specific psychotherapy that they offer. Several psychotherapies are available to treat unipolar major depression. Cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, or interpersonal psychotherapy are the initial preferred psychotherapy treatments. Other reasonable psychotherapy alternatives include behavioral activation, family and couple therapy, problem-solving therapy, psychodynamic therapy, and supportive psychotherapy.
for the initial treatment of unipolar major depression, psychotherapy plus pharmacotherapy is recommended. Psychotherapy or pharmacotherapy alone are reasonable alternatives, but they're not the most efficient and effective. Electroconvulsive therapy, known as ECT, is also an option considered as reasonable to pharmacotherapy alone, especially if the initial treatment for the patient includes a severe suicidal ideation or they're seriously malnourished due to self-induced starvation. Now, multiple studies have shown through research that at the end of treatment, the efficacy or effectiveness of antidepressants compared with psychotherapy are generally comparable. However, following an acute course of treatment, psychotherapy, particularly if it's cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal psychotherapy, those have a slightly better advantage in the lingering effect to reduce depression, whereas the benefits of an acute course of antidepressants are often lost if the drug is discontinued. Another challenge for the physician is choosing the appropriate antidepressant medication. Based on many factors, including safety, side effect profile, the comorbid state of your patient, concurrent medications the patient may be taking, and potential drug-drug interactions, how easy a patient can take the medication, your patient's preferences, and most important, the cost, determine what you're going to select. Some common short-term side effects of some antidepressants include gastrointestinal problems like diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. And again, these are short-acting, usually a couple of weeks. Other potential side effects include sexual dysfunction. Paroxetine is especially problematic for men to disables their ability to have an orgasm. Somnolence can be another side effect, especially a medication like trazodone. makes you sleepy, and that has one of the stronger effects. Weight gain is especially common among a medication called Remeron. Antidepressants rarely will cause liver injury, but there are some people who have particular genetic inherited features that make that probable. If a person is going to have some type of liver issue, it's usually evident in the first six months of treatment and can be reversed and resolved completely once you withdraw the antidepressant medication. So this is why in many instances you're advised to have laboratory tests done within a month or two after starting your medication. As I mentioned, some people will require a different type of medication based on how it affects their body. There are genetic factors that can influence how a medication is being utilized by the body and how the body processes and deactivates the medication. That's known as pharmacokinetics. And what your body does to the medication or drug is what we call metabolism or metabolic effects. 
Some people have a genetic predisposition to metabolize antidepressant drugs rather quickly. So once you take a medication, it's present for a shorter period than most people. And because of this, the medication dose usually is higher than most people would tolerate. Rapid metabolizers, uh, that's what we call people that process the drugs quickly, can be seen for antidepressants among actual ethnic and racial groups. In black Ethiopians, about 16 to 29 percent of them have this genetic feature. People from Saudi Arabia, about 20 percent of that group of people are fast metabolizers of antidepressant medication. People from Spain, about 10 percent of them have this condition. And here in the United States, about 5% of African Americans are fast metabolizers of antidepressants. Asian Americans rarely have this genetic feature for rapid metabolizing. Conversely, there are some people that are slow metabolizers, and because they're slow, the medication lingers in their body, and it takes a longer time to deactivate and remove. And so these slow metabolizers actually have to take lower doses of antidepressants. So, for example, a person who's a slow metabolizer and is taking a SSRI, which I'll explain later, like Celexa, they would have to have no more than 20 milligrams per day due to the condition of cardiac arrhythmia or irregular heartbeats because of a higher concentration of this product in their body and blood. Now, antidepressants are divided generally into two different groups. You have the first generation and the second generation. The first generation antidepressants are rarely prescribed today. They include classes of medications called monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or MOIs, and tricyclic or tetracyclic antidepressants. Today, the second-generation antidepressants are more commonly prescribed. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are one class or family of second-generation antidepressants that are most commonly the initial medications prescribed to treat depression. Examples of these medications include Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Celexa, and Lexapro. Other second-generation antidepressant classes include serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, Examples of these are Effexor, Cymbalta, Pristique, or Sevilla. A third group are called atypical agents, like Welbutrin, or Remeron, or Abilify. And a fourth group of second-generation antidepressants are the serotonin modulators, like Trazodone or Trintelex, or Vibrate. 
Generally, physicians start the low doses of antidepressants in order to reduce the potential side effects. We generally treat depression for at least a 6 to 12 week period of time before deciding whether the antidepressant has sufficiently relieved symptoms or not. Early improvement during the initial treatment of depression with antidepressants may predict eventual remission. A pooled analysis of 41 randomized trials with slightly less than 5,000 subjects in the study found that early improvement was a sensitive predictor of eventual remission. Now, individuals who have what we call persistent depressive disorder or dysthymia are characterized by persons who have a generally low mood state or dysphoria that occurs most days for at least two years or longer. For persistent depressive disorder, a meta-analysis of eight randomized trials demonstrated that pharmacotherapy alone is generally superior to psychotherapy alone. So, what are some of the take-home points of this discussion? Well, number one, we all have some idea of what major depression looks like, but it's a little more challenging to make the diagnosis official and appropriate. Number two, major depression is best treated using a collaborative care approach. Aside from your physician, a mental health expert like a psychiatrist or psychotherapist trained in cognitive behavior therapy or interpersonal psychotherapy or other forms of psychotherapy, plus a medical social worker or case manager are very effective in getting a good result. And third, antidepressants must be carefully selected based on safety, potential side effects, comorbidities that an individual may have, current medications that they're taking to avoid possible drug interactions, and lastly, costs. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct message. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or a substitute for your own personal physicians, nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my podcast team, Lauren and Natalie, who really are responsible for making this podcast possible. I'd also like to request that for anyone who's not registered to vote yet, please do so this week so that you can cast your vote on November the 3rd. Your health depends on your vote. Until next opportunity, may you be happy you be healthy, may you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart. <laughs>